Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Larry Kerwin, who is the creator of Paradise Square, which is a musical that is now playing at Berkeley Rep through February 17th. Larry Kerwin has a long and distinguished career as a musician with Black 47, New York Irish band that disbanded in, I guess, 2014, has his own band now, author of, from what I could tell, three books, A History of Irish Music, Rockin' the Bronx, and Green Suede Shoes, which is a memoir. Yeah, there's a couple of other books, too. There's Liverpool Fantasy, about the Beatles, if they hadn't made it, and uh, Mad Angels, the other one, yeah. So five books in all, plus this <laughs> musical, and I think there are 11 other plays? I think I've done 15 plays, but someday, <laughs> someday I'm going to have to sit down and count them. <laughs> five of the plays were collected in uh, Mad Angels. We'll talk about your career, which is really fascinating because <laughs> actually Wikipedia said at one point that you were kind of like the zealot of rock and roll, having hung out with people like Cindy Lauper and Neil Young and folks like that. I wouldn't go that far, but I have hung out. I used to go out every night when I was playing, and so I met a lot of people. Actually, I never stayed in touch with them very much. Your first band you were kicked out of or not allowed to play at CBGB's, is that correct? Uh, I was actually banned there for a short while. Why? Uh, I won't get into it. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need to know. (laughs) Well, well, let's talk about Paradise Square before we go on to your career. Sure. I spoke with Nathan Tyson about it, and you're a composer, and yet most of this music derives from Stephen Foster. It's set in 1863 in the Five Points area of New York, of Manhattan, and it concerns draft riots for the Civil War. So this is a kind of interesting area for a man who has focused mostly on the Irish, even though there were a lot of Irish there. I mean, this is a new area for you, I guess. What brought you not to in the, Not in the least. You know, really? one, one of the problems with America is that everybody feels they got to put you in a a particular bag, you know, whereas where I come from, you just delve into everything. So let me give you the full story of it. I grew up in a town called Wexford in the southeast corner of Ireland. Colm Tobin came from there. Colm's from there, yeah. So I was raised by an old grandfather who told me stories every night. And one of the stories he used to tell me was about the five points, even though he'd never been there. It was so strong in immigrant lore that he knew about it and used to tell me about it. Where exactly is the Five Points? It's in lower Manhattan, roughly now around the bottom of Chinatown, although a lot of it is built up with the courthouses down there. So it's the far end, sort of on the East River side of where the World Trade Center is on the west. Right, roughly across from that. I also 
like everyone in Ireland, knew the music of Stephen Foster, which fascinates Americans. But Stephen Foster was known around the world. Although I, I love the sense of loss in his songs, there was a kind of a Victorian calcification that was uh, laid down on top of all of them. The arrangements were from that era. When I was about 17, 16, 17, I got a gig playing guitar in the uh, rough working men's bars of the Quayside, the, the docks in Wexford. Part of your gig was to back whoever wanted to come up on stage and sing with you. And they would usually do that with, you know, five or six pints aboard. And many of them sang Stephen Foster's songs. And for the first time, I heard the essence of Foster because they didn't care about the Victorian calcification. They were singing these songs from the heart. And I got all the loss of the Foster songs. And then I came, I emigrated and moved to New York City. And I was living in the, living in the East Village, which was just above the five points. So I used to go down there. And I was always interested in history. So I spent a lot of time in uh, the used bookstores in uh, New York. And one day I came upon a book that had some etchings of the African-American-owned dance halls in the Five Points. And I knew that the Irish musicians and the African-American musicians got together in these dance halls. I always, always wondered, because eventually I'd formed Black 47, which used Irish and African roots, uh, but I was always wondering, how did they mix? What did they do? And uh, then I saw the bands in these etchings, and... It was always mixed race. It was Irish fiddle player, Irish singer, African-American banjo player, and African-American uh, percussion player. This was when you were in your 20s. Yeah. But then I began to look at the faces of the dancers in the uh, etchings, and it was always an African-American man and an Irish woman. And the joy and the delight in their faces beamed across the centuries to me. So I began to do more research on that and found out that between 1845 and 1863, many Irish women married African-Americans, and they were called amalgamationists, not by themselves, but by the uptown people who really hated this idea of the two peoples getting together, not the least of which was the babies would be brown, but they would also be Catholic because of the Irish coming in. And that was a horrific thing for the, the uptown Protestants, as they were called, the ruling class. So, you know, all these things came together. And around 2009, I'd written about 14 plays at that point, And uh, I was looking for something new that would... Uh, would take in all the different things I'd learned about this, but also my own particular talents as a playwright and as a, a, a composer, as you say, and a lyricist. And um, I put it all together, and 2012, we put it on a place called The Cell, run by a woman called Nancy Manichirian on 23rd Street in New York, and it became a big success. And that was called Paradise Square? No, it was called Hard Times at that okay. point. And it got a really good review in the uh, New York Times. And then Stephen Foster's, the anniversary, the 150th anniversary of his death was January 14, 2014, and we put it on again. And a guy called Peter Ledon, who is a producer, showed up. 
he thought it was great, and he introduced me to a producer called Gart Trubinsky. Who's got quite a negative reputation from years ago. Yeah, except not with me, because it was the passion he showed for it. After he'd heard it and read it, he said, I've done two big musicals of a certain type. Ragtime. Ragtime and Showboat. I want this, want to work on this to make it the trilogy. And I was thinking, wow, really? <laughs> so, you know, he had this passion for it, and he persuaded me that this is something we could do, and they bring in other people into it, and he brought in a, a great creative team, and here we are in Berkeley Rep. When you were doing it as Hard Times, that was the music of Stephen Foster. Yeah, I put in some songs to you know bridge the story gap. I was using about 15 Foster songs and probably did three or four of my own. I was telling the story about this African-American woman because I always thought she should be the center of the play, the saloon owner, Nellie, and the two boys, an Irish guy who escapes the famine in Ireland and an African-American boy who um, escapes slavery. Is that still the basic element of... So the main characters are a saloon keeper and a black kid and a white kid? Yeah, uh, they're roughly the main characters. I I added some more characters to that. I think there's about nine of the original characters I worked with still in the play. Is Stephen Foster still in it? Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. Okay, so at what point did Marcus Gardley and Craig Lucas come in? Craig came in about four years ago, and then Craig left after a couple of years, and Marcus came in two years, 18 months ago, something like that. I'm not sure the exact dates. And you worked with them to try to smooth out the rough edges? No. Well, Marcus is a poet, and he's also African-American, and he's a fine writer of white characters, too. But we wanted to get the authentic feel of African-American people in there, and who better than Marcus? Where did Nathan Tyson come in as an additional lyricist? Nathan came in around the same time as Craig and Jason Howland, a really important part of the the team, as a musician and arranger and composer came in at that point too. Bill T. Jones, the choreographer, came in at that point and um, Moises Kaufman. So they all kind of arrived roughly the same time. These are very, very big names in New York. Very big anywhere. (laughs) What struck me about all of them wasn't so much the big name part of it, you get over that in, a, in an afternoon, but is the fact that they all wanted to really work on it, that they saw that there was a, a power to it and uh, really wanted to add their talents to it. And that's what impressed me more than just the name. And they all have. It's no longer just my project. I had to seed a lot of... Uh, what I would normally do, but that's cool. You know, I, I have plenty of other plays and projects to go with. So it's, it's been exciting, you know, and not without its problems, as one could imagine. <laughs> but we're all still talking. We've got drinking together, so <laughs> that's a good part of it. As you were creating this, what made you decide to use 1863 
which is the time of the draft riots? Because I'm a dramatist and you always look for a time that you're, you're pushing against time. It's one of the, the, the things with drama and with character. What happens to characters when there's an event coming down the uh, pike? The draft riots have been kind of written out of American history because they don't really follow the American narrative that the people rose up against the awful conditions they were working in. The draft actually set it off, but many, many immigrants were really displeased. They'd come to America for the new life, and here they were living even worse in many cases than they had been in the countries they came from, and they were sick of that. So there was a kind of a mass uprising on July 13th, 1863, that went on for four days and had some really bad things that happened too. But the beginning of it was good, was that we're not gonna take it anymore. So that's the point where the play starts then, I guess. Yes. Well, the play starts with the Irish regiment, the the Fighting 69th, leaving New York. Many of them are regulars in Nellie's saloon. And they go off with full hopes of what they're doing. But with many of the Irish and the other immigrant uh, columns that went off, they were put to the front lines and used as cannon fodder. And there was a resistance against that. And then Mr. Lincoln brought in the draft. And it wasn't so much that we were against the draft even. It's just that if you had $300, you could buy yourself out of it. And $300 was a, a year's wages for a man or a woman at that point. So there was uproar over that. Martin Scorsese's film Gangs of New York, was that before this all happened? I think it's roughly the same time, but I've saw, I saw the movie, but I, I don't remember the actual. I must look it up and find out that it, that it is the draft riots. But I have read part of the book, The Gangs of New York, and that was about the Irish gangs fighting the nativist, know nothing gangs. Mm. And actually, on July 13, 1863, the Irish gangs kind of won that war. So I'm not sure. It might have happened just before it. But the the main thing is that that's sort of the era and the place. Oh, yeah. It's definitely the era and the place. (laughs) Which kind of gives people an idea of exactly what we're looking at from a different perspective now. Yeah, from a very different perspective. And I don't think, to my memory, there were many African Americans involved in that. It was more the Irish gangs against the American Bowery Boy gangs, as far as I remember. What kind of changes came down between your original work and what people are going to be seeing at Berkeley Road? One of the the ideas Garth and I had at the start was that, you see, my work was always just in the saloon, but this was a bigger story to bring in the Civil War. I mean, you know the Civil War is going on outside, but we wanted to bring it out into the streets and... I had six characters in the original, and now there's, there's a cast of 32. So it's, it's to encompass uh, what was happening in America at that point, but not just to talk about it, but to show it, to show the streets of the Five Points and you know, to show it on a bigger scale. And that means that you could have ensemble singing and 
Yeah, very much. And that's where Jason Howland came in because he's a masterful arranger of voices, too. That doesn't happen to be one of my great traits. <laughs> <laughs> Larry Kerwin, is there any original music of yours in the show? No, we decided to use all Foster music. I mean, Jason and I, in the early days, we just went through about 40 or 50 of Foster's songs to identify other songs that I wouldn't have used. So there was a lot of excavating, you know, just seeing what Foster's songs were like and then seeing how we could change them and make them a little more palatable to the modern ear. For instance, like Foster and, and the people at that point didn't use bridges or middle eights in a song and they didn't use contrapuntal intros. If he was using an intro, he'd play the first line of the chorus or the first line of the verse. So we were able to update Foster in a way that he probably would have, having such a keen ear, if he'd known about these things. So it was like thinking, how do you keep what Foster has done, but at the same time make it a little more easy on, on the ear you know, and, and put new chords to it? Sometimes change the melody <laughs> if you <laughs> felt like it. Yeah. Obviously, using electric instruments would change it. And I'm sure that when you first heard Foster in that environment in Wexford, it would have been different instruments sung in a different way. Yeah, you know, I don't think that was such a big issue. When I, when I first heard Foster, say, coming out of the radio, of BBC or Irish radio, it was someone with a piano playing it in an 1860s style and some right. tenor or soprano singing it. So you had to really listen with modern ears and say, that is a good song, you know, but you had to put what I call calcification out of the way. When I went into the pubs in Wexford and the dockers were singing it, they were just singing the melody and the words from the heart, and it was a total different thing. And I was playing an acoustic or an electric guitar at the time and trying to figure out what are they doing and trying to stay with them because these, these guys would turn around and hit your belt in the ear if you you played out of tune with them. <laughs> it was a shaky gig. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to get what the Dockers, their take on it was. But that's what opened me up to how great Foster's music is. Larry Kerwin, so you've got the songs, and the songs have lyrics. But unless you're trying to create kind of like an 1860s jukebox musical, which you are not doing. No, decidedly not. <laughs> then I'm not sure I'd even know how to do it. <laughs> then you're not trying to create a script that fits around the songs. You're changing the songs and leaving the melodies and occasionally the words? Yeah. Well, for one thing, Foster has, he has a dodgy reputation in that Certain of his songs, which are called plantation songs, probably 20% of what he wrote. He wrote over 200 songs in his lifetime, and maybe, I don't know, 30 or so of them were plantation songs. They were minstrel songs, the, the music that was popular at the time. And although Foster didn't tend to make fun of African Americans, the, the style was blackface and you know, making fun of African-Americans. And uh, so some of the songs reflected that. And those you had to totally change for obvious reasons. You, you couldn't, 
you wouldn't want to do to repeat those songs in that form. And then for the sake of the play, uh, the story, and Nathan was, was great at that, is driving the story forward through the lyrics and the music. Because that's the nature of a musical, that everything combines to tell the story, the, the music, lyrics, and the, uh, uh, the dialogue. So we're, we're not going to just necessarily hear, oh, Susanna, or something like that, just straight out. Or no, do we? No, you won't. You will hear, you'll hear a verse or, or so of it that is straight out, but it, it has a driving beat behind it. It's during a dance number. And dancing, of course, I'm, I'm leaving out the one big element here. Dancing is such a part of this because one of the things that happened when the Irish and the African Americans met in the Five Points dance halls, they both peoples loved dance and they had competitions. There would be an Irish champion and uh, an African American champion. And how they they did the competitions was the Irish guy would get up and he would dance an Irish jig or a reel. And then the African-American guy was allowed to imitate, to say, anybody can do that stuff, you know, and he would get up and do his idea of it, and then he would do his kind of juba dancing, and then the Irish guy could imitate the juba dancing, saying any idiot could do that, and through that back and forth, they created tap dancing. So that's an element in the, uh, in the musical, too. It gets bigger and bigger as you talk about it. Well, that was one of the things that attracted me to the um, to the whole idea of doing this. Is you had a natural form of dance that was being created at that time, so you had that. You had Foster's music, which was so melodic and so heartfelt at the same time that you had that, and then you had the story leading up to this cataclysmic night in New York of July 13, 1863. So you, you had all the elements for a, a great dramatic musical. And then I can understand why Bill T. Jones would be attracted because he would be able to go back and kind of recreate the moment when tap is created. Well, Bill T. Was, wasn't that keen on the whole idea of tap itself without knowing for definite what he was able to do or was to explore what did African Americans who liked dancing, what did they do on the plantations during slavery? And so there's a certain element of that that he recreated that is, is kind of startling to look at. I mean, it's probably my favorite part of the whole musical is to see that and to see then the Irish dance come from from the famine because you're talking about Ireland having eight and a half million people in 1840 and in 1865 there are only five million people left in the country so huge there was a huge exodus and there was a huge amount of deaths that happened so you you have two brutalized peoples who come together and the one thing that they have is this way of expressing themselves in dance and in music. And through that meeting, they created tap and they also created just American music. Larry Kerwin, let's talk a little about your career. So you're born in, in Wexford. I guess you didn't know Colm Toybin until years later, or did you? No, I met him in New York. 
Well, Colm actually is from a, a different town in Wexford. He's about 14 miles away from me. But I had an uncle there, so I knew who the Tobins were. You know? Oh, really? Yeah. So. It, it's kind of a small area then. Yeah, it's a small area. Well, what town were you in? I was in Wexford itself, and he's a little town called Enscorti. For those of you who've seen Brooklyn, the movie Brooklyn, uh, that's shot in Enniscorty, which is about 13 miles away from where I live. When did you pick up a guitar? Was it a guitar that got you interested in music? Yeah. Like everyone, I realized if you had a guitar, you're going to meet girls. (laughs) 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 No, it was just, you know, everyone was into the Beatles and into... Wexford was a music town. There's an opera festival there. It's really close to England, to London. So if if you were going to emigrate from Wexford, you would go to London rather than to New York. Did you head over to London at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. How long did that take? Uh, you just took a boat across the fish guard in Wales, and then there's a train waiting. So the whole thing probably takes about nine hours, something like that. You, you go drinking in Wexford on a Saturday night. You go to the boat, and you're in London early on Sunday morning. At a certain point, you figured you'll start playing in, in the clubs and just jam around with people, huh? Yeah. In, in Wexford, too, there was music in the bars. So, you know, I played in little rock bands and everything. And then I met a guy who had a band, and he was the one who introduced me to playing in bars for money uh, and accompanying dockers and whatever. Yeah. Had you done any writing? Uh, yeah, I wrote some awful songs when I was about 16 or 17. <laughs> sure. Prose writing. Though. Oh, prose writing. I was always interested in writing, and uh, I knew I'd be a writer someday, but music was just much more exciting than sitting down and writing. I didn't really start writing in a big way till I came to the U.S., and uh, there were so many opportunities to write for theater, or write novels, and I I did both of them. So what brought you to America? Adventure. I was about 20 when I first came, and I'd also seen Midnight Cowboy. I thought, I want a piece of that. (laughs) After being a town, a small town like Wexford, just the idea of New York was, it was just, well, I I was also very political, so I couldn't go to London. I, I didn't feel like I could go there. Because of the troubles in the North. Yeah. Uh, are you still political? Yeah. Well, look at Black 47's output. A lot of it is political. This play is political. I mean, uh, I, right. I've always been a political writer of some sort or other. Before we go on, Brexit. Another stupid British mistake, though. <laughs> Just when you think they can come up with another one, they come up with that. But <laughs> Okay, so you come to the U.S. and you're, you know, political, and you get in, in a band. Is, did you get into punk at that point? Oh, yeah. Or? That's how I was in CBGB's with <laughs> Hilly. The guy who threw me out of there was a friend on top of everything. So. What is Malachi McCourt's Bells of Hell? It was one of the most wonderful bars in the world. It was at the top of Greenwich Village and uh, 13th Street and 6th Avenue. And uh, Malachi is a brother of Frank McCourt who wrote Angela's Ashes. And Frank was one of the customers. He was a school teacher at the time. And it was full of writers like Pete Hamill and, uh, and rock writers like Lester Bangs and uh, a lot of English and Irish guys and women and um, a lot of political people, too. I remember seeing John Kerry in there one time when he was 
and Vietnam vets against the war. So it, it had a big back room that had political events and also had music events. I, I played there for many years. And you were in a band at that point. I was in a, a duo called Turner and Kerwin of Wexford, the hardest name ever to say. I was there with my partner and friend, Pierce Turner, and we played in the, the back room of this bar. Were you playing acoustic with him? or No, we were using an electric acoustic guitar with a lot of effects on it, and she was playing a, a clavinet and a Moog synthesizer, so we made one unholy... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> noise in there. <laughs> At some point, you formed Black 47. That came later, though. Yes, that came later. I had a, a record contract with CBS Records uh, with Pierce in a band called The Major Thinkers. We were going to be the next new thing, and then we got dropped by the label, and I decided that now is the time to really concentrate on um, on playwriting. So I gave up music totally for four years or something like that and just wrote nonstop and put on everything, directed and uh, produced everything that, that I did. So I got this great apprenticeship in, uh, in playwriting. Where, where did you produce it? Oh, just in small theaters around New York. Yeah. There's a, there a vibrant kind of off-off-Broadway scene. Is that yeah. the Liverpool fantasy? Yeah, Liverpool fantasy actually was more off-Broadway. That, that's had a lot of productions. It was about the Beatles if they hadn't made it. And uh, that did really well. And I turned it into a novel that's out there still. But then around 89, I began to really miss being on stage. And I hadn't missed it at all. And um, I met a New York City cop. Um, called Chris Byrne. He was a detective, and he was an Illum Pipes player. And I, I jammed with him one night, and uh, we were drinking afterwards, and he was all kind of depressed. And I said, what's the matter, man? And he said, well, the band I'm in, which was called Beyond the Pale, this is our last gig. And he said, I have all these gigs to do. I said, I'll do them with you. And we decided to form a political band then, and... Uh, he said, what should we call it? And I said, let's call it Black 47 because Black 47 was the worst year of the uh, Irish potato famine. And it has the same connotation as the, the Jewish one, never again. Yeah, so, so we were political from the start. And we went up to the Bronx <laughs> where all the Irish bars were. And we didn't tell them we were going to do original political music. They were expecting U2 or something like that. Or, so... You had to do four sets a night, and we got fired over and over. But you could do five, six nights a week up there. So within a couple of months, we were pretty hot. And uh, the band took off really fast through a word-of-mouth thing. We we wouldn't give interviews. We didn't do anything like that uh, in the regular press or anything. You had to come to see us and then write about it. You know? So it paid off. Well, I didn't even know there was a circuit of Irish pubs in the Bronx until I went to my sister's favorite hangout in Riverdale, and which you know. It's called on Bail Bucked, which is Gaelic for uh, poor mouth. It's named after a Flann O'Brien book. One of the reasons I know and love it is because it's a very civil and nice place, but many of the, <laughs> the pubs in the Bronx have been many nice people in them, but 
they were tough places. They wanted to hear a certain type of music. So when Black 47 went in, it was confrontation. Luckily, I had been in a punk band, so I knew how to do it. Uh, and Chris was a, a police officer, so he used to make a thing. of He would come from the beat, and he would take his gun off on stage and put it in his Zillin Pipes case, let everybody see that we're the only ones with the, the one legal gun in this place. You know? So he was a cop with a leftist political perspective? Yeah, that's one of the things you know, cops get tagged with a lot. They're always tagged as being these right-wing People want to beat you up, but when you get to know cops, they have uh, all sorts of feelings and all sorts of political outlooks. And Chris was, yeah, Chris is out there. <laughs> he was a great player, by the way. Before we go on to your later career, one question is that I've noticed in talking to Irish people, people who grew up in Ireland, that there's a culture of reading and writing there that. Yeah is just unfathomable to us, and theater. Yeah, I guess it's uh, it's because of colonialism. You know, the British ran the place for so long, and one of the, the ways you could subvert what they were doing was by singing songs that they didn't totally get or by taking their English language and subverting it to write novels or to write poetry or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's there. I mean, I always knew I would be a writer at some point. I guess in the early years of playing and everything, I wasn't prepared to stay in at night and uh, and do that. Now I am. I have no problem in doing it because traveling with the band, I've I found it was one way to stay sane to be writing all the time. And then when computers, laptops came in. It was so easy to be in the back of the van and put earplugs in and just get into that world, whatever world you were creating. Were there a lot of theaters in Wexford? Uh, well, there was one. Yeah, there was a couple of them. Uh, one called the the Royal, or um, which was also an opera house, and then there was a a parish hall that had plays that came in. It was a great way to express yourself. Uh, I was never an actor, but I, I could write for them. Yeah. Well, getting back to your career, um, Black 47 took off for many years, yeah. many albums, and at the same time you were doing writing, and you wrote a memoir yeah. somewhere during that period, or more or less. Yeah, the the book, the novel I wrote, Liverpool Fantasy, out of the play Liverpool Fantasy, um, became a kind of a hit. Or, you know, it sold sold well. And I was contracted to do another book, and I was working on the one called Rock in the Bronx, which is about uh, being in the Bronx and all the politics up there and everything. And I had a hard time with it, and the publisher came to me and said, listen, you know, you've written a lot of songs. Why don't you just take about a dozen of the songs and put stories around them because one of the things that happened to me as a songwriter was when I was playwright for those four years, when I came back to write for Black 47, we were playing four sets a night, so there was a need for songs. So I was writing two, three a week. And it wasn't until we started getting reviewed that I found that my whole style had changed, that the songs now were all stories and were character-driven Whereas before, I was just your typical rock and roll writer. So the songs that I picked were all, a lot of them had to do with autobiographical 
content. And after about putting stories to about three of the songs, I realized this is actually turning into a memoir. And then it was really easy because each chapter had a song. And I found uh, writing the memoir wasn't as hard as writing Rock in the Bronx. So I put out the memoir and then I went back to writing Rock in the Bronx and learned from the memoir, I think. So Black 47 broke up in 2014, is that correct? Yeah, we, we disbanded. We, we were 25 years on the road, so we decided from about 15 months out that we would, we would break up on the 25th anniversary and it would also be roughly 2,500 gigs. So we, we toured nonstop for that 15 months and then had a, a, you know, a lot of farewell gigs and a big one in New York and B.B. King's that was filmed and everything. And, and then I walked away from it. It was like, it felt right. To well, when I went online, I saw you have another band now with your own name on it. Yeah, but I, it's not a permanent thing. Uh, I do it usually around St. Patrick's Day to do a big gig in New York City. The drummer from Black 47, who I played with before, Black 47. He's a part of it, and uh, I invite musicians in. We interpret some of the Black 47 songs, and it's interesting going back and uh, interpreting with, with different musicians. Do you plan to play any Stephen Foster? I do. Yeah, we, we do that. I do a, a set of songs that are to do with the five points. I used to do a kind of a hip-hop version of uh, Camptown Races, so we include that and Hard Times itself. The, the song, there's a Black 47 version of it that I'll give you. You can play if you feel like. According to Wikipedia, you're working on another musical called Transport with Thomas Keneally. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I did do that. It was around the same time that I first started doing Hard Times, Paradise Square. Tom came to me at one point, and we had a mutual friend, and his wife's great-grandmother had been sent as a convict to Australia. Irish women were picked up and basically sent to Australia for little crimes like stealing a pound of butter or a loaf of bread because the Brits wanted to send women over there to mate with the convicts in there and create a new colony in New South Wales in, in Australia. So he wanted to tell the story of that and uh, we did through the play, the musical Transport. I'm actually working on it again right now because uh, the book was never quite right from working so much on the book of Paradise Square. I think I have a PhD and how to fix plays at this point. So I've been working on that. But the, the real one I'm working on is a big one about Iraq. That's, that's the, uh, the one I'm really working on, telling the story of of America in Iraq through the eyes of some of the people who went over there and through the eyes of two of the interpreters who become very involved with them. And that's a musical. That's a musical, yeah. And that's, all, that's pretty much done. Will it go through a stage like turning hard times into Paradise Square? Or I hope it? not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'd be alive for another one. I used to have flame red hair. Look at me now from, from Paradise Square. It's, it's pretty much there, and it's a, it's a rock score, so it's, uh, it's, I think it's an easier one. <laughs> Knock on wood. The next step is to produce it. To produce it, yeah. Uh, one Anybody out there? <laughs> 
One final question about Paradise Square. I mean, when I'm looking at people like Bill T. Jones or Moises Kaufman, obviously I'm thinking Broadway. Is is that somewhere in the back of all of your minds? Oh, yeah, that's the idea. It was always the idea to do that. There wouldn't mean much point in spending the four or five years we've we've done on it without it having that payoff. One final question, Larry Kerwin. You said you're working on Transport again. You've got this Iraq thing. Do you have any albums coming out, anything like that? You know, there's not really a lot of point in making albums anymore because Spotify has wrecked the business and uh, people really aren't buying them. Uh, they're not buying CDs anyway, and uh, it costs a lot to make an album, so unless you were able to s- get the money back through selling CDs, it's not really feasible. I mean, you can go out and beg for the money and do it that way, you know, through a GoFundMe thing, but I don't really like doing that. So my focus now is more on musicals because... I find them really satisfying. I think you can talk about big issues with a musical in a way I didn't think before. Uh, About five years ago, I realized that you can actually do political and social commentary through uh, a musical. I've spent the years working as a dramatist and as a, a songwriter, so it feels like a better avenue for me to combine those two rather than to separate them anymore like I was doing four years. Now that I have the, I'm not on the road with Black 47 so much, I can do that. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>